Good morning, everybody. So we're in uh, chapter five of Exodus this week. So we've covered all of well, the first four chapters, which is the intro to the children of Israel leaving the land of Egypt. And this, what we're up to now, is the first encounter with Pharaoh. This is a, God has called Moses. Um, that was last time, the last couple of chapters. And uh, Moses was quite um, disagreeable about that. He said, no, I don't want to do it. I'm not the right person. And he gave five excuses. And God dealt with all them. And now, uh, him and Aaron, Moses and Aaron, are going in to actually talk to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh is not just an ordinary guy. In the eyes of the people, he's a god. Something to do with the sun god. The sin of the sun god. So um, that's what he believed he was, and that's what the Egyptians believed he was. So this is a very powerful man. So keep that in mind as you're reading this. So Exodus chapter 5, we'll just read the, the whole chapter, then we'll get into it. Get the storyline going. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters of the people and the officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go, get yourselves straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick. And indeed your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he, Pharaoh said, You are idle, idle. Therefore you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore go now and work, for no straw shall be given to you, or given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, 
you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then, as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge. This is the people of Israel talking to Moses. Because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, neither have you delivered your people at all. So, just a bit of an aside, how many bricks do you think the people made? If you made a wall that was 10 foot high and 5 foot wide, how long would it be? Maybe from here to Albany, 500 kilometres, do you think? That's a long wall, it's a big wall. What about from here to Adelaide? Actually, they they reckon it's about, from Perth to Sydney, about 5,000 k's. About 5,000 kilometres. Um, they made enough bricks to build a wall 5,000 kilometres long, which was 10 foot high and 5 feet wide. That's what they reckon. Because they found evidence in the archaeology about the quotas they had to make. I suppose the entire time they were there, maybe 100 or so years, 150 years, they were maybe, maybe 100, I'm not sure actually, because it's hard to tell exactly how long they were slaves. I'm guessing maybe 100 years. And the straw, as another bit of background, was um, essential for making the bricks because the straw set the brick. It released acid into the clay, which held the clay together, which is the secret to how they made such good bricks. So they had to have that straw to make bricks. It's not just um, clay as we make bricks today. So back to verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? So, Pharaoh claimed to be a descendant of the sun. That's one of the Egyptians' gods. Okay, So he's claiming deity. And he's refusing to acknowledge a greater one than himself, because if he did, he would be required to submit to this greater God. Okay? Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, the Greek word hold in Romans 1.18 describe what sailors would do in purposefully sailing directly into the wind. That is, those who hold the truth in unrighteousness know the truth, but suppress it, determined not to go with the flow of what they know to be true. They feel the wind of the Spirit, they understand something of the truth, but they're determined to set their boat in the opposite direction and sail against what they know to be true. And that's Pharaoh. Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Okay. And this is the fundamental demand. Let my people go. And it's the same for us today. God wants us to be free. God is seeking freedom for his people. And a couple of things that we can um, get from this phrase, let my people go, God is saying that Israel belongs to him, not to Pharaoh. 
and therefore they should be free. Those who belong to God should be free, not bound. And that's the whole point of what's going on here. Pharaoh replies in verse 2, I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Well, the only way to know the Lord is to obey him and to submit to him. And Pharaoh did not want to know the Lord because he had no intention of obeying him. If you desire to be obedient to the Lord, if you submit to him, then he will give you revelation of who he is and will provide direction for you. Now, I imagine your desk at home, right? Most of you would be be able to relate to, to me in this. Your desk is full of inbox stuff, you know, the get the round to it desk, you know, you seen that? Yeah, come around to my place and I can, can't can find stuff, you know. So I've got a lot of things on my desk which I need to do. But God doesn't do that with us. He only puts one thing on our desk at the time. One assignment, one memo, one piece of information, one directive. And then he waits until we do it before he gives us another. So if we don't do what he's asked us to do, if we're not walking in obedience, then we'll never discover the next step. We'll never get to that next piece of revelation of the where he wants to reveal more of his character to us and make us more like him. So Jesus said, my burden is easy, my load is light. He gives us one thing to do at a time. He doesn't overwhelm or overwork us. He's just waiting for us to learn this or do the one thing that he's given us to do. So they said, the God of the Hebrews, verse 3, has met with us. Please let us go three days into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or the sword. So it's God's intention to completely free the people of Israel. But first, he's just asking that Pharaoh would let them go out for maybe a week, three days out, maybe a day to sacrifice and three days back. That's that's my guess. It's not a hard request. It's a whole nation, and they, they worship a different God to the Egyptians. They know that, and they're saying, we want to sacrifice to our God. It's not saying, we're leaving. <laughs> we're never coming back. It's just saying, we want to go and sacrifice. But it's going to demonstrate the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And verse 4, then the king of Egypt, notice the king, Pharaoh is the king of Egypt, king of the world. Okay, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. So don't ask for time off, get back to work. Verse 5, and Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So this is a uh, testimony, the people of the land are many, that his efforts to kill them had not worked. So they are still multiplying. God has been faithful to his promise. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and officers saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. As I explained, um, you need straw. And Pharaoh decided that Moses' request for at least a week off was the last straw. So the children of Israel would get no more straw. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it. For they are idle, therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. So Pharaoh is doing like a, you know, those manipulation games. He's turning the people against Moses. And he's saying, The reason that you are suffering more now is because of Moses. He's trying to cause division. 
Now, often when we want to start to confront something in our life which is holding us down, it could be a sin, it could be a, a habit, whatever it might be, things will often be harder or worse for us because Satan wants to keep us there. He'll make it kind of easy to stay in that place where we're bound. But as soon as you try and get free, Satan will really ramp up his attack and he will try and keep us there. Satan wants us to think that it's not worth it to try and give that thing up. But this is a test of our loyalty. Will we be faithful to God and learn to depend on him? Or will we give up and just keep on doing the same old things? There is usually a struggle before there is liberty. Okay, And verse 9. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. So, false words, vain words, a waste of time. That's what it means. You know, vanity, vanity, said the preacher in Ecclesiastes. It's a waste of time. And Pharaoh, picture of Satan, is saying, worship is a waste of time. It's empty, it's useless. You don't have time for communion, you don't have time for worship, you don't have time for devotions, you don't have time for church, you don't have time for prayer. There's work to do. You've got to keep busy. An example of this is Judas. A really good example, actually. He observes Mary anointing Jesus' feet with ointment, which cost a year's salary, and said, that is a waste. That money could have been spent on the poor. That money could have been used to do some good work. Yet Jesus would later refer to Judas as the son of perdition, or literally the son of waste, because the biggest waste is that of wasting the opportunity to worship. So we live our lives, and we think we're so, you know, we are so preoccupied with so many things, but the biggest waste is actually to waste the opportunity to worship to worship God. Now, we don't have moles in this country, but I, I saw this um, example, this story, so I, I thought I'd share it. You know what moles are? Those little critters that dig holes, tunnels under the ground for hundreds and hundreds of meters. Okay, here's this little story. The moles in my backyard drive me crazy. To rid my yard of them, I've stuck a hose down their holes and flooded them for an hour at a time. I've tossed in little smoke bombs. I've stood vigilantly over the holes with a shovel in hand. All to no avail. Then I read that in one night, a single mole will often dig 100 meters of tunnel. And as my experience proves, the mole's efforts are not in vain. For even though they're digging under the surface where no one can see them, when the smoke bombs are thrown in or the water turned on, they can escape in their network of tunnels and bomb shelters. (laughs) So this is a little picture of these moles being prepared. And that's what our devotional life does for us. What a waste of time staying up later or getting up early to study the Word. What a waste of time to go to prayer on Sunday morning or Bible study on Friday night. That's common. If you look around Esperance, what do people do? A lot of people don't go to church. It's a waste of time. Okay. But that's because they fail to understand that those things are the tunnels and bomb shelters that will protect you from the inevitable attacks of the enemy. We need to be prepared. The disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus replied, this kind does not come out but by prayer and fasting. Matthew 7.21 In other words, we are to live a life of prayer and fasting. If we wait 
to lay the spiritual groundwork until the challenge is right there, until we're at the challenge, then it's too late. We're not ready for it. We're not strong enough. We won't be able to do what we could have done or to be who we might have been because there was no tunnels dug under the surface in the dark, early in the morning and late at night. So we need to be prepared. We need regular time in worship. And the taskmasters of the people and the officers went out and spoke to the people saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw where you can find it, and yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also to the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had sent over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today? And then they go to Pharaoh, and uh, he tells them that the reason that you're suffering is because you want to go and sacrifice to the Lord, which means that you have too much spare time, which means you can do more work. So we can sympathize with the children of Israel, but do you think it was the right thing to do to go to Pharaoh to seek help from this situation? Who could, who else could they have, the children of Israel and their, um, their supervisors, who, who else could they have gone to? They could have cried out to the Lord. So, you know, the, the first thing we often do is go to call out to a person. And that person might be a spouse, it could be a boss, it could be someone that we know to try and ease our burden. But what does the old hymn say? Oh, what peace we often forfeit, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So we often try to seek out people when in reality God says, Woe to the rebellious people who take counsel, but not of me. So if you feel like the whip is cracking and your back is aching, cry out to the Lord instead. He will give you rest. So, verse 20, Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them, and they said to them, Let the Lord look upon you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Pharaoh's little trick has worked. His mind game, he's caused them to think that it's all Moses' fault. When Israel was an obedient slave to Pharaoh, they thought he was their friend. They kind of accepted the status quo. Because remember later on, what did they want to do? Go back to Egypt. And that's the funny thing about sin. We kind of accept the status quo. We know it's not good for us. We know it's eventually going to kill us. But, we accept the status quo. But when we want to get free, then it gets really hard. And the idea of freedom has come into their mind, and now Pharaoh is showing them how he felt about them all along. So Satan brings us sin, and he tells us that it's good for us. It seems good. He seems like a fairly nice guy. You know, He's offering us something that we can enjoy. But when we start to be free in Jesus... His true colors are shown, and he will try to make life very difficult for us. So back in chapter 4, verse 31, when Moses and Aaron went to the people, they said, Oh, this is so awesome. 
God has visited us. They bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, like two days later, they're gone from saying, oh, thank you, Moses, to, oh, God, judge you. Remember, though, that God had allowed all this. In fact, God had designed it. You heard the story of the caterpillar becoming a butterfly? Yeah, and if you, you know, cut the cocoon before the time, then the butterfly can't struggle and its wings won't fill and it'll actually die. So God could have freed Israel from Egypt without a struggle on their part, yet he knew it's not the best thing for them. That for them to make the transition from being slaves to being free people living in the promised land, that there must be some testing and stretching. There must be some strengthening. And that's what happens with us when we try and and overcome sins and, and get free from sin, is that we have to be stretched, we have to be made strong. So because Pharaoh wouldn't help them, the children lashed out at Moses and Aaron. And being a leader is often hard, even if it's in your own family, because everyone's got to blame someone. Uh, But what they should have done is what Moses did. We're going to see what Moses did in the next couple of verses. He went to the Lord instead. Instead of complaining to people, he went to the Lord. There's a quote from Wearsby. It says, Instead of going to Pharaoh to complain, the foreman should have gone to Moses and Aaron and suggested that they summon the elders and have a prayer meeting. They should have reminded themselves of the promises God had given Israel and claimed them by faith. What a difference that would have made for them and for their leaders. Alas, during the next 40 years, complaining about God's will and criticizing God's leaders would be the characteristic of the people of Israel. But are God's people much different today? So that's a quote from Wearsby, and I thought it was quite pertinent, quite relevant for for today. Uh, Verse 22, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, neither have you delivered your people at all. So firstly, this is what Moses makes Moses great. Instead of, can you imagine yourself in Moses' situation? All those um, supervisors of the children of Israel are coming, oh, Moses, look what you've done, you stuffed everything up. You know, God judge you for making life so hard for us. Moses goes, <sighs> I didn't want to come here in the first place. God, get me out of here. (laughs) So he doesn't respond to the people. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't get involved in an argument. He goes before the Lord and just shares his heart. Why is it you have sent me? What have I done to to deserve this? (laughs) And so he says, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? So Moses has forgotten something. When God told him his assignment earlier on, he said, the Lord told him, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by mighty hand. So Moses should have expected trouble. He should have expected that things would be hard. And here's, if God gave Moses an extended explanation to answer the question, it might go something like this. Moses, I brought trouble because I'm interested in more than simply freeing Israel from slavery. I want to transform them from a slave people into a people fit for my promised land. This doesn't happen quickly or easily, and it involves countless expressions of both trust and surrender. Trust me in this trouble, and I will use it for Israel's good and my glory. 
So that's basically how I would um, explain God's purpose for letting them suffer. And why is it you have sent me? And in this season of testing, this is Moses saying this, um, the same old fears came crashing into Moses. You know, remember before, he said, I'm not the right person to go. I can't speak. You know, I'm not the man God should send. God won't come through. Pharaoh and the Egyptians are too strong. And there's still some unbelief in Moses' heart. He's still struggling with this. But what is God doing? He's not just working with the people. He's working with Moses. I imagine that he's going through agony of soul. I imagine his soul is just dying, but in a good way. Moses is dying to his self-esteem, to his castle building, to pride in his miracles, to the enthusiasm of his people, to everything that a popular leader loves. <laughs> you know, you get a popular leader and they've got all these things happening around them. You know, Everyone's saying, oh, how great you are and all that kind of stuff. But Moses is none of that. All the things that a popular leader loves to hear, they're not there. So as he's laying there on the ground alone before God, wishing that he was back home in Midian, watching sheep, and thinking that he himself was hardly being used, he was a failure, he was actually falling as a grain of wheat into the ground to die, no longer to abide alone, but to bear much fruit. So remember how Jesus said in the New Testament, if a seed doesn't die and it's not planted, and it won't bear much fruit. So we can't bear fruit unless we die to ourselves. So this is God causing Moses to die to himself. Moses probably thought that the dying to himself was finished after 40 years of tending sheep in Midian, but it wasn't, and it never is. So for us, the process of dying to ourself will not finish until we go to be with the Lord. God will still use adversity to train us to trust him until the day we go to be with him in heaven. And the next bit is, neither have you delivered your people at all. Moses is hoping that it's all going to come easy. Wiersbe says, God's chosen servants must expect opposition and misunderstanding because that's part of what it means to be a leader. And leaders must know how to get along with God, pour out their hearts and seek his strength and wisdom. Spiritual leaders must be bold before people but broken before God, and must claim God's promises and do His will even when everything seems to be against them. So, who is a leader? All of us here are leaders. We're leaders of our kids. We're leading our friends to Christ. Okay? We're all, in a sense, we're all leaders, and we're all going to get, say, dealing with our kids. We have to learn to not let them get us down. We have to learn that that's part of what it means to be a mum, to be to be leading your kids, to be a dad, to be leading your family. We need to know how to get alone with God, pour out our hearts and seek His strength and wisdom because there's going to be times when they're really going to test us. That's just a family. There's going to be times when our friends, when we're speaking to them about Christ, that they're really going to test us. We need to know how to Get alone before God so we don't respond in anger. And I've just got a quote here. It's called A Trouble-Free Life. This is from Ray Comfort. The contemporary church promises a wonderful new life for the sinner if he will just give his heart to Jesus. 
This is not only unbiblical, it is untrue. Things do not always go better with Christ. More often than not, they go worse. Ask Stephen about the wonderful new life as his body was being pummeled by great stones. Or ask Paul as he was being beaten and whipped for his faith. Or ask the martyrs as the flesh burned at the stake. The true convert, who has been enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season, upon conversion, is suddenly thrown into the heat of a terrible battle. It is a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh continually tries to pull him back to sin. The devil tempts and taunts, afflicts and accuses him. The world, with its many sinful pleasures, tries to allure him back to its warm embrace. Former friends and even his family may hate him and even have him put to death, thinking they are doing God a favour. However, when a genuine convert finds himself in a fearful lion's den, he will not shake his fist at God. He will drop to his knees. And uh, another quote from J.C. Ryle, Few things do so much harm in religion as exaggerated expectations. People look for a degree of worldly comfort in Christ's service, which they have no right to expect, and not finding what they look for, are tempted to give up religion in disgust. Happy is he who thoroughly understands that though Christianity holds a crown in the end, it also brings a cross in the way. So we must carry our cross, we must die to self on the way. So chapter 6. So then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. So Moses has been discouraged. Why? Because he thinks that Pharaoh is greater than God. He's scared of Pharaoh. And we can have the same problems, or the problems that we are in, they seem too big for us, they seem too hard, and we forget that God is bigger. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So God is giving, repeating that promise to Moses that Pharaoh himself was going to kick the people out. And that did actually happen. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, or Jehovah, or Yahweh, I was not known to them. So, the name I am, as you talked about a while ago, is the name that God gives. He's a, the promise keeper. Whatever we need God to be for us, whatever problem we're in, whether whoever, whatever help we need, then God is the great I am. I am whatever you need me to be. He's the promise keeper. Now, the name Yahweh was used in Genesis and for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God never fulfilled any of his great promises for them about the land, about you know conquering enemies. They didn't own any of the land except a burial place. So they had the promises, but not the fulfillment of the promises. So verse 4 says, I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. So this generation of Israelites is going to have a better appreciation of the name Yahweh, or the I Am. God is going to fulfill his promises. He's going to show himself to be the dependable God, the faithful God. So 
Here's a little story um, about a, a revival which took place in Florida in the 1890s. As thousands of people were brought into the kingdom, reporters covering the story re- repeated an expression they heard the new believers use. They didn't say people were born again, nor did they say many people were saved, nor did they say many people received Christ. Now all those things are true. People were indeed born again and were saved because they received Christ. But the phrase appearing most often in the written record was that people were seized by a great affection. In other words, people were simply overwhelmed by the goodness and grace of God, swept up in his loving embrace. It's an interesting way to describe being saved, isn't it? Seized by a great affection. Well, I was reading Romans the other day, and I got to the end of chapter 11, and Paul has been describing that we're all under sin and that God has shown mercy to all of us. I'll just read a little bit of it to you. Maybe you could read this with me. It's Romans chapter 11, verse 32. So, As Paul usually does, he spends the first part of the book, whatever epistle it might be, explaining who God is and how much he loves us and how much grace he has toward us. And then he says, because of this, this is how you should live. And so if we don't understand why we should live for Christ, then we probably won't. So starting at verse 32 in chapter 11 of Romans, For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. And then he just breaks into this uh, worship here. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's like Paul just got to the point where he's saying that God is, even though we've sinned so much, that God is so gracious and so merciful, he's going to have mercy on all, Jew or Gentile. And then he just breaks into this worship. And it's just, you know, it's got exclamation marks at the end of the sentences. So I can imagine Paul struggling to say, sitting down while writing this section. If he were dictating it, I imagine him always yelling it, doing a little jig, maybe, you know, doing some Hebrew dance. It's just spontaneous worship. It's just being overwhelmed by the goodness of God. And in the text before us, we're going to see exactly what God does for his children, not only historically with the children of Israel, but for us presently when we get saved, when we're born again, what God has done for us. So, verse 6, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. So, God is going to give seven I will promises. And these relate both to the historical account that we're going to read, but also to our salvation. This is a picture of our salvation. God says, I'm going to do it. You can count on me. So the first one is, I will bring you out. Second one is, I will rescue you from your bondage. Third one, I will redeem you. Fourth, I will take you as my people. Fifth, I will be your God. Sixth, I will bring you into the land. And seventh, I will give it to you as a heritage. Now, this hasn't happened yet, but the verbs, the I will, are in the past tense. So God is speaking this as like it's already happened. 
God says, I will bring you out. But it's in the past tense. If you read in the Hebrew, it's, it's like it's already happened. Because when God says something, he will do it. In his eyes, it's already been done. So the first one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So salvation. Egypt is always an illustration of the world system, of the lost condition of man. I will save you, God declares. I will bring you out from there. And that's exactly what God did for you and for me when he brought us out from under the burden of sin. Under the burning, blistering Egyptian sun, the children of Israel baked bricks that would be used to construct tombs. And that was us as well, living meaningless lives, burdened by guilt, building our own tombs with our activities. But then God saved us. Great is the mystery, Paul would say, that God became a man and dwelt among us in order that he might ultimately die for us. 1 Timothy 3.16 Man's greatest need is forgiveness. God's greatest deed is salvation. The second one, I will rescue you from their bondage. So liberation. God would not only remove his people from Egypt, but he would rid them of their bondage. Now, here's a little story. The thing I have against you Christians is that you live such restricted lives a man said to this person at the YMCA. Not true, the pastor said. I drink as much as I want whenever I want. Not only that, I go to all the parties I want because the Bible says all things are lawful to me. 1 Corinthians 6.12 So I get to do whatever I want. And he continues, It's true, I drink all I want to and the amount I want to drink is none. While getting drunk has always been as tempting to me as eating snail pellets or rat poison, even that which used to pull me no longer does because I'm absolutely free. And other testimonies, oh, it's been two weeks or three months or four years since I've smoked. Now, it's not that I made a pledge or a promise, but I've just been so into the Lord, so excited about walking with Him that I forgot to light up. And that's what God means when he says, I will rid you out of their bondage. So the third one, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So this is redemption. So to the children of Israel, an outstretched arm referred to God's judgment against Pharaoh, especially the death of the firstborn. And how God passed over them for judgment if they had killed the lamb and put its blood on the doorframe, the Passover lamb. Now, to us, the fulfillment of that is the outstretched arm of Jesus pinned to the cross of Calvary, for that's what it took to redeem us from Satan's power. The entire human race was sold into slavery when Adam sinned. Adam was given dominion over the earth. God gave Adam dominion. But when he sinned, he gave it over to Satan. And therefore, mankind became a slave to sin, a slave to Satan. Now in the book of Ruth, you have this beautiful picture of Boaz as a type of Christ who is our kinsman redeemer. He's going to redeem us. I'm not going to go into that today. So the price Jesus had to pay to buy us back, to purchase us out of the slave market of sin, was his very life, his blood. And if you'd like to turn to Galatians with me, we can read a bit about this um, being redeemed. It's Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. This is one of the reasons that we should be so grateful for what God has done for us. 
So Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now go to chapter 4, verse 4, in Galatians still. Another verse about redemption. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I'm going to read that same verse, or the same verses from the New Living. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. So, isn't that amazing that God bought our freedom with his blood? And that, that's what it cost. And we can't become his son, or we can't become sons of God, until we're bought out of the slave market of sin. So that's what it means to be redeemed. Okay, the next one, in verse 7, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. There's two there. And this carries on from the previous one. So this is adoption. I will claim you as my family, God says to the children of Israel. Christ has adopted us into his own family, to his family. That's what Paul tells us, as we just read. And what a family it is. We look around at ourselves and we think, oh boy, this family's got issues. <laughs> but guess what? We're all on the road to being sanctified. We are being sanctified. We are being perfected. And that's why we need to be patient with each other, tender-hearted towards each other, remembering that we're in the same family, we've been brought out of the slave market of sin, and we're all at different stages in our walk. And we need to, as uh, Paul talks about in Ephesians, just deal with each other with love, forgiving one another, bearing with one another, because we're not perfect. We are being perfected. Just remember that we're all part of the same family. It goes a long way for me, when I think about it that way, to being patient with um, fellow believers. Verse 7, the second part, Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So, Revelation, you will know who I am and you realize what I've done. Verse 8, And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's given them direction. I will bring you into the land I told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about. The promised land, the place I prepared for you. It's not talking about heaven, I believe. I believe it's talking about a life of faith. A life of living in victory. God has a new life of faith planned for us while we're still here in this earth. A life of freedom from sin. A life of joy, peace, and love. And all this, even while we are suffering temptations, trials, and persecutions, and also fighting giants. Now, you might have giants in your life, things, circumstances that you think, oh, this is just too hard for me. Guess what? When the people went into the land, they had massive, massive cities. 
They had huge armies with iron chariots. They literally had giants they had to fight. But God was with them. They overcame by faith. Uh, if you'd like to turn to John chapter 15, I'm just going to look at some of the benefits of being a Christian and walking in obedience to God as we face temptations, trials, and persecution. We're going to see why it is worth following the Lord and being obedient to Him, even if we do have to go through trials, tribulations, and persecution. So John chapter 15, verses 7 to 11, and we'll finish on this. So it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So there's the first thing. We can get what we want. If we're walking in obedience to the Lord, whatever we ask for according to his will, we get. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So what happens when we walk with the Lord? We we live purposeful and fruitful lives. We bear much fruit. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. So we experience God's love. Who doesn't want to be loved? What's the world crying out for? Love. People want to be accepted. People are seeking acceptance. In Christ, we find that acceptance. It continues, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. So what's God's will for us? That his joy is in us. And remember, this is in the middle of the persecutions, trials, and and tribulations, and temptations. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So, peace in the middle of the storm. So, these are the benefits of walking with the Lord. It's not a waste of time. It's worth it. And uh, what God gives us, the world cannot take away from us. The world cannot take away those things. We can give it up. We can choose to start living for ourselves, to become selfish and other maybe sinning willfully. But as soon as we repent, we get it back. That is why Paul and Silas could sing after being beaten and put in prison. And that is why Paul could encourage the sailors to eat after 14 days being blown along by a massive storm not seeing the sun for two weeks. So our strength comes from within, not because we're anything special, but because Christ lives in us. As Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. And the last one is the heritage. And I'll go into that um, next week. So we'll, we'll look at the, the seventh I will statement next week. just want to finish up on um, on that. So why is it worth following the Lord? Because the things that God gives us, the world cannot take away. We can follow him. We can love him. And no matter what the world throws at us, those things, the joy, the peace, the love, the fruitfulness, nothing can take those things away. Lord, I just pray that you help us to, to be like Moses and not like the children of Israel. Lord, when bad things happen, they started complaining and sought human wisdom to try and fix their problems. But Moses, even though he was you know, still struggling with his doubts and unbelief and 
still struggling that, you know, that he couldn't do it. But Lord, you pulled him through. And Lord, he just learned more and more to depend on you. More and more he learned to come to that place where if God says something, I just need to do it and leave the results in his hands, leave the uh, repercussions in his hands because uh, it's beyond me. And I pray that you help us to learn to do that in the things that happen with our families and our friends, Lord, that we don't revile or we don't yell back or strike back with our tongue, but Lord, we would take it to you instead. And um, even when we're falsely accused. And I just pray that you'll give us that humble heart that Moses had. And above all, I just pray that you'll, um, as we went through those um, this first six I will statements, that you help us to be just seized by a great affection. Lord, just to come back to that first love. Remember your first love, Jesus said in Revelation. I just pray that we could do that and just realize as we go through this passage that this is all about our salvation. This is a picture of our salvation, of us being taken out of the world, of being redeemed, taken out from that bondage and being redeemed, bought out of the slave market so we become children of God. So I just thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.